This is Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. I'm Dane Sanders. Converge is a show about what it takes to create interesting things. Sometimes our best efforts break down. Other times we create magic. Making something from nothing and shipping it for others to embrace or reject is not for the faint of heart. It's for the brave. Said different, Converge is for you. These conversations with artists and entrepreneurs put real lives on display as they make their best contributions to a world in need. With each episode, you'll get the chance to consider new ways to live and work in the creative economy. Converge is made possible thanks to Cantilever.co. Cantilever is a web design and development consultancy serving clients who want better results online. If your organization is trying to send a message, close more deals, or attract better talent, Cantilever can help. You can find them at cantilever.co. That's C-A-N-T-I-L-E-V-E-R dot C-O. Converge is also made possible thanks to tellmeyourdreams.com. They help your employees love their job. To find out more about how TMYD can help your organization attract, engage, and retain the best talent, and see a great example of Cantilever's work, head over to tellmeyourdreams.com. In 1978, M. Scott Peck, the American psychiatrist and best-selling author of the book The Road Less Traveled, started that book with a simple phrase, life is difficult. And that has become a phrase that has been universally understood and accepted, not just conceptually, but experientially. The entire planet understands that life is difficult. It is the kind of assertion that nobody can push back against. Everyone has experienced it, especially in recent days. And never have we as a society felt a greater sense of urgency to understand how do we navigate life when it's this difficult, when it's this challenging. Well, the beginning of that conversation is really around deciding what comes first. What is the priority? Where do you put your attention and your energy and your action? And I can think of no better guest to have on the show to help us address this conversation than Greg McEwen. Greg is the author of Essentialism, and he's also the author of Effortless. You can find him at gregmcewen.com. To say that he is successful in what he has brought forward to the world would be a radical understatement. This notion of finding a disciplined pursuit of less so that you can do more has been recognized by folks at Adobe, Apple, Google, Facebook, Pixar, Salesforce, Semantics, Twitter, Yahoo, and the list goes on and on. He's a New York Times bestseller. He's been featured in Fast Company, Fortune, Huffington Post, Politico, Inc. Magazine. He's among the most popular bloggers for Harvard Business Review and LinkedIn influencers. He seems to be everywhere. But what I love most about what Greg brings today isn't just that he has some profound ideas, because there's a lot of really smart people. But what Greg brings is a framework by which we can think through how do we decide what are the right things to do, and then also ground those things with the right reasons. So the right things for the right reasons but he goes one critical step further and helps us understand how to do the right things for the right reasons in the right way. Friends, you are in for a treat of treats. I cannot wait to get started. Please join me now for my conversation with Greg McEwen. Greg McEwen, welcome to Converge. Oh, it's so great to be with you, Dane. Thank you so much. I mentioned off air how privileged I am to have you on. It's a treat on so many levels. You're someone that has had a significant influence on my life in ways that 
are bigger than most. In fact, last night, as I was rereading your book, I realized just how thumbed through my copy was. It was tattered and torn and marked up all over the place. So I I feel very familiar with you and what you bring to the table. But for listeners who don't know precisely and are about to be introduced into something pretty special and maybe interrupted into their life, could you share a little of the essence of what is behind essentialism, the disciplined pursuit of less? Well, essentialism is a way of thinking, a way of operating where you figure out what is essential, you eliminate everything that's non-essential, and then you create a system to make it as easy as possible to do what really matters most. That's a three-step process, explore, eliminate, execute, and you're doing this on a literally a daily basis. That's Mm. what essentialism is. Let's break those three down. So explore, eliminate, and execute. When you say explore, what precisely do you mean? I had a guest on the What's Essential podcast recently who taught me about what explore means. Uh, After she'd read Essentialism, she said that she started asking the question, what's the most important thing I need to do today? Mm. And she, I think, put it up somewhere. So she was actually looking at it, reading it every day. And at first, the answers were to do with her business. She runs a consultancy in the UK. But over time, the questions stayed the same every single day, but the answer changed. And that's essentialism. It's not that you answer it once. It's an ongoing basis. That's the exploration. You keep coming back to the question. And for her, one day she gets a phone call from her dad. He says, look, there's nothing to worry about, but your mum's in the hospital again. They're just keeping you in the loop. You've got way too much on your plate to worry about it. Just wanted you to know. Mm. But as she asked the question that day, as she explored what was essential on that day, She said she remembers where she was, the weather outside, time seemed to stand still, and she just knew completely that the most important thing that day, the priority, was for her to go two hours to the hospital to go and see her mother. And she did. Sees her mother, I love you. Mother says the same back, I love you too. Within one hour of that, her mother had fallen into a coma from which she never recovered. A week later, Joe had the unfortunate responsibility of turning off the life support machine. Wow. She said how different that day would have been, that moment would have been if she hadn't been an essentialist, if she wasn't in the perpetual disciplined pursuit of what really mattered on that day. Mm. So that's an example to me of what it means to explore. It's creating a little space every day to really keep coming back to what's most important now. What a profound story. And also one that evokes a lot for people. I know as folks are listening at home, they're relating to a story like that, perhaps in a way where they were like her in that position of radical awareness and awakeness and curiosity. And they made a particular choice or other folks might have heard the story and thought of a painful moment where they weren't as awake and they missed a critical moment in their life. And the good news, of course, is their life continues and there's opportunity to redeem all of it. But I'm I'm struck in particular of this notion of curiosity as a, a virtue almost or a discipline. How critical is curiosity relative to the exploration process? It's highly important. It's part of it. And an element of that curiosity is just creating space to be able to be curious. Hmm. In today's environment, one of the, the oddness of it is that we can be so perpetually tied to Uh, our devices, uh, that we can live out of our inbox. And that will consume us body and soul. Perhaps for sort of the first time in history, 
we actually have to create space to think. Hmm. I think it used to be, I mean, in an agrarian society, whether you want to think or not, you've got plenty of time to think. There's no electricity, so the, once the sun goes down, you're going to be caught around a fire. You're going to be talking with each other. You're going to be reading typically from the Bible. You're not going to have many books, but you're definitely going to be in, in space to think, space to consider your place in the universe. That has so disappeared in our modern society. You have to create it. You have to put it on your calendar. So I've already mentioned one way to do that, this daily sort of, even if it's five minutes coming back to that question, what's the most important thing I need to do today? Or whether it's weekly, a design session, which I, I didn't do it this week, to be honest, on, on Sunday, but I do, do it typically every Sunday. Mm. You know, that might be an hour or even two hours just to, uh, one, explore what's happened in the past week, particularly what I'm grateful for. So I like to list sometimes an entire page worth of what important things have gone right. Secondly, I want to review the next week. You know, what are all the things that might be on my list might be, you know, I assume are important. And then the third thing is just to prioritize those. That too is an exploration process. That's trying to create space to figure out what's essential. And then just a third example at an even higher level is I recommend people hold a personal quarterly offsite. So that might be for, could be a couple of hours, could be as many as a couple of days where really the whole point of the weekend is to, in some ways, exactly the same three steps I just identified, hmm. what you're grateful for, what's coming up, and then prioritize it. It's really that same simple process, but you're doing it from a bigger angle so that you can adjust more fully to make sure you're not getting too far adrift. These are some of the practices that have helped me to make exploration a part of my routine. And it makes sense. I mean, to go from that exploration in the context that we're living in, when we're so filled up with things that we would necessarily, the next step to be eliminate, of course, if we're overwhelmed with all of these draws on our attention and energy and time, we'd have to begin to eliminate. Talk a little bit about that section of, of the conversation. If people have created this space, but they're still getting notifications, they're still getting interrupted, other people's agenda items and problems that they want you to solve that we all experience on a daily basis. Talk a little bit about that notion of removal. And I know in the book, you spend a lot of energy, which I so appreciate around boundaries. Talk a little bit about that section of the process. Well, so eliminates really where it grabs people's attention. It's not enough to know what your yes is. You, you actually need to say no to something. I mean, we're doing that all the time. Every time we say yes to anything, we're saying no to many, many other things. But we tend not to be very conscious about what we're saying no to. We want to believe that we live in a trade-off free world where you can say yes to everything. Not only do we want to live in that world, we believe if we can say yes to everything and do everything, then we're going to get everything. But in practice, this non-essentialism, to give it a name, doesn't produce what it promises on the packaging. Mm. Personal experience for me, an illustration was when I got an email from my manager at the time that said, look, Friday between one and two would be a very bad time for your wife to have a baby <laughs> mm. uh, because uh, I needed to be at this client meeting. And my wife, of course, was expecting, otherwise even weirder email. <laughs> but, uh, but, but sure enough, Friday, we're in the hospital. Our daughter's just been born late Thursday night, and I am feeling torn. How can I do both? How can I keep work happy? How can I 
keep my family happy, my wife happy, be there for my daughter. And instead of being focused on what was essential, I'm trying to straddle it. And so to my shame, I went to the meeting and even afterwards, the manager said, look, well, the client will respect you for the choice you just made. Honestly, the look on their faces didn't evince that sort of respect. But even if they had, it's clear, uh, I think to anybody who hears about this, that, that I made a fool's bargain, I violated something far more important for something far less important. Mm. And learn from that, that if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. And in that story, there's a little more to pull from it, which is if you believe life doesn't have trade-offs, you'll live and decide the way I just did in that story. You'll just do both always. How can I do both? The essentialist recognizes the inherent, inevitable trade-offs. In fact, doesn't just recognize them, embraces them, recognizes, in fact, the enormous value in trade-offs, that you can make strategic trade-offs, that you can decide I'm not I'm going to become distinctive in these ways. And I'm going to say no to other things that even my competitors are doing so that I can create this breakthrough level of value. So it's true personally as personal strategy, but it's also true for business strategy uh, that we need to eliminate the non-essentials in order to break through to the next level. That breaking through, this is the execution bit, right? You're setting the table really the the point is for you to live fully or to execute fully or to make the most of your project. Yes. I mean, when you get to execution, you know, really the idea here is that an essentialist and a non-essentialist approach execution really differently. The the non-essentialist tends to approach execution as something forced at the cost of your own health and sanity I mean, even the term execution is a pretty interesting word, right? I mean, like that's how that's what we want to describe it as is is the execution, the the, the, the guillotine, the, the guillotine. <laughs> uh, I mean, this is this is what we're talking about. This is what we mean when we say get things done. The essentialist sees a different approach. Hmm. They want to take the time that they've saved through elimination and use it to build a system that makes getting what matters done as easy, as effortless as possible so that it can continue to happen. Yeah, it's interesting. What struck me as you were sharing this notion of effortless and also that what is essential is ironically easiest if you're positioned for it is this idea of positioning. And I grew up in Canada and I moved to the US to go to college. And when I came down, of course, every Canadian, what we do is we go, we go surfing in Southern California. So I went surfing <laughs> with my friend Tim I was a cliche. I was the guy who was drowning without a tan, unable to get past the break, and finally got out and finally learned a couple things about the water. But what was amazing to me was Tim, who was just an extraordinary, not only gifted, but skilled, he'd practiced at this thing. I would paddle like I was dying, like my life depended on it, like a shark was at my heel, and right. I couldn't catch a wave to set my life. But Tim seemed to be in the position where one downstroke and he was on the wave with no effort whatsoever. And I got so irritated. I finally said, what, are, what am I doing wrong? And he said, you're just in the wrong spot. You're not <laughs> positioned at all, ever. <laughs> and and it's, it's like infinitely more difficult for you to do what I'm trying to accomplish. And it's infinitely easier for me to do it because of where I'm positioned. And that's some of what I'm hearing you describe. It's not that all of a sudden everything gets easy. It's just when you prioritize properly, 
things do get easier, like you're just in a better position. Am I hearing that close to home? I think your example is a beautiful example of what I would describe as like honorable effortlessness, which is you can either do essential hard things or you can do trivial and easy things. And so much so the dichotomy can be so strong for overachievers that if it's easy, they distrust it. Uh, that's easy for you to say. Mm. And on the other hand, well, it's a, it's a hard day's work. It was hard won battle. We achieved it by blood, sweat and tears. I mean, listen to the language, the, the false dichotomy. Yeah, but what if there's an effortless way to do what matters? What mm. if so effortless isn't for lazy people? It's for otherwise high achievers who have run out of space and still think the answer is to double down and do more. They're already on the edge, teetering on the edge of burnout, and they still think, well, the answer is to give more, do more, try harder. And, and just like you with the on the surfing day, you actually make it harder and harder to achieve the result that you want because you're yes. overexerting. And so effortless is really, I mean, I think it's such a humane subject I'm actually surprised as I'm talking about this. You might, I don't see it in English, but I can feel, I feel so emotional about it mm. that, that I believe that there are a lot of people right now, a huge, huge number. I can sort of see them in my mind's eye mm. who just need to know not everything has to be so hard. Mm. <laughs> you don't have to necessarily make a choice between giving up essentials or, or like, giving up your sanity and health, that, that there is this third alternative, that there, there is an easier path. Mm. And, and I've just spent the last few years trying to extrapolate that and codify it and then put it into words uh, so that it would be a little easier for other people to find it and to implement in their own life. Oh, it's so good. We'll be right back after this short break. Ty, you and I have talked about what you're trying to do with your customers, and you've described Cantilever as a hospitality company, and you make websites. What what does that even mean? So you know how you go to a lot of these websites, and you're a number, or you're trapped, and they're just trying to get as much ad revenue out of you as totally. they can while you're on the article. You know what I mean? Imagine that you're trying to get a message out, but the experience that people are having is awkward and inconvenient. So at Cantilever, what we try to do is give people an experience that is really comfortable and welcoming and really think of what they're trying to do when they come to a website. So instead of bombarding them with, with ads, we're thinking, where are they at in their lives that they're in this place where they're reading this article and what are they trying to get out of it? But we try to make that really, really easy. We call that principle digital hospitality. You can do hospitality online. That's actually possible. It is, but it requires a translation of that hospitality skill set into a digital environment. And one of the things that's really powerful about trying to do hospitality online is that it involves a lot of technology. And there are countless ways that you can build incredible, powerful code bases that are oriented around a user's experience. So they're not just there to do something cool. You're doing cool things so that you can give people a better and better experience. If you're listening to this and you want to do that for your website, go to cantilever.co. Check them out. So talk me through, because you have such a great data set of people, a million people who interact, it's a lot of emails to deal with. I imagine 
there are some very predictable stages that people go through when they begin to take this seriously. So let's say they've they've given mental assent, they bought in, they think, yep, this makes sense to me. What are the very predictable stages or phases that people go through uh, that they should anticipate the the resistances, the obstacles, the things that are challenging that are the kinds of things that they ought to persevere because they'll get through them if they are consistent? Okay, so I want to answer that in an unusual way. I I literally pulled up something I just wrote. So, you know, in, in the, the, the books that you've published, but there's a certain point on books that um, you're not really allowed to make any changes, you know, like you, you probably can, but you, you know, it's sketchy. Yeah. And this was such a moment we sort of have the PDF now and we, we are allowed to make changes. And I just worked with my, my editor on this and, and just concluded that the story that was in effortless wasn't the right one yet. Like the opening story, and mm. there's a story that's, that's, I think it's relevant and it's, I, I was hoping it would be helpful, but I just couldn't, I need to, so literally this is, I have in front of me that story and you can, you know, I'll read it to you if you're please. interested. No, I'm very, very pleased to. Because it answers your question as well. Is that after my first book was published, I hit the speaking circuit. I had the opportunity to travel the country, giving keynotes, signing books, and sharing a message that was close to my heart. Anna, my wife, uh, loved that I often took one of the children with me on these adventures, and so did I. On one such trip, I arrived at my book signing at the scheduled time to find 300 people had lined up around the corner, and the story had run out of books, which had never happened before at an event. That year was a blur of airport lounges, Ubers, and hotel rooms to which I would return in the evenings, exhilarated and exhausted and called down for room service. Hmm. It was more than I could have hoped for. The success of essentialism had changed everything. People who had read or listened to the book three, five, or 17 times wrote to tell me how much the book had changed their life, or in some case, even saved it. Each of them wanted to share their stories with me, and I wanted to hear them. I wanted to speak in front of rooms full of people who were eager to become essentialists. I wanted to respond to every email I received from leaders. I wanted to write personalized messages to everyone who asked me to sign copies of the book. I wanted to be present and gracious with every person who had a story to tell about their experience with essentialism. Even better than being the father of essentialism, so to speak, was being a father now to four children. Mm. My family epitomizes everything that's essential to me, so I wanted to invest in it fully. I wanted to be a true partner to Anna and to make space for her to pursue her own goals and dreams to really listen to the children whenever they wanted to talk, however inconvenient those times often seemed. I wanted to be there to celebrate their successes. I wanted to coach them and encourage them to achieve whatever goals felt most essential to them, whether that was to direct a movie or become an Eagle Scout. I wanted to play board games together, to wrestle, to swim together, to play tennis, to go to the beach, to do movie night with popcorn and treats. To make time for such things, I had already stripped away many non-essentials. I'd resisted writing a new book, even though I'd been told I was supposed to do so every 18 months. I'd taken a break from teaching my class at Stanford. I'd set aside my plans to build a workshop business. I'd never been more selective in my life. The problem was it still felt like too much. And not only that, I felt a call to increase my contribution even while I had run out of space. I was striving to model essentialism, to live what I teach, but it wasn't enough. I could feel the cracks in an assumption I had always held to, that to achieve everything we want without becoming impossibly busy or overextended, we simply need to discipline ourselves to only say yes to essential activities and no to everything else. But now I found myself wondering, what does one do when they've stripped life down to the essentials and it's still too much? 
Around that time, I was teaching a group of extremely thoughtful entrepreneurs when someone had referenced the big rocks theory. It's the well-known story of a teacher who picks up a large empty jar. She pours in some small pebbles at the bottom. Then she tries to place some larger rocks on the top. But the problem is they don't fit. The teacher then gets a new empty container of the same size. This time she puts the large rocks in first then the small pebbles in second. This time they fit. This, of course, is a metaphor. The big rocks represent the most essential responsibilities like health, family and relationships. The small pebbles are less important things like work and career. The sand are things like social media and doom swiping. The lesson is similar to the one I'd always ascribed to. If you prioritize the most important things first, then there will be room in your life, not only for what matters, but also for other things, too. But do the reverse and you'll get the trivial things done, but run out of space for the things that really matter. But as I sat in my hotel room that night, I wondered, what do you do if there are too many big rocks? What if the absolutely essential work simply does not fit within the limits of the container? As I pondered this, I got a video call. It was my son, Jack, calling from my wife's phone. That was unusual and immediately got my attention. I noticed immediately that his face was drained of its color. His tone was urgent. He looked scared. I could hear my wife's voice in the background instructing Jack to turn the phone around so I could see what was going on. He tried to explain, Eve, something really wrong. She was just eating and then her head started moving. Mom told me to call you. Eve was having a massive tonic-clonic seizure. The adrenaline got me through what I did next, hastily packing and picking and, and taking the red-eye flight back to my family. But what would follow in the days and weeks ahead left me emotionally drained. There were hospital visits, the consultation with medical experts, the endless phone calls from friends and family who wanted to know how we were holding up and how they could help. Meanwhile, I discovered that all my other responsibilities didn't miraculously disappear just because I was in the middle of a crisis. There were still keynotes to provide for my family, flights to cancel, essential emails to answer. The walls closed in around me. I was burdened beyond belief. It was suffocating at times. I wanted to collapse under it all. It was torture. This went on for many weeks. Eventually, I recognized the situation for what it was. I was burned out. I had literally written the book on how to be an essentialist, and here I was, overwhelmed and spread far too thin. I felt self-imposed pressure to be the perfect essentialist. There were no non-essentials left to eliminate. It all mattered. Finally, I said to Anna, I'm not well. And here's what I learned. I was doing the right things for the right reasons, but I was doing them in the wrong way. I was like a weightlifter trying to lift using the muscles in my lower back, a swimmer who hadn't learned to breathe properly, a baker who was painstakingly kneading each loaf of bread by hand. I expect you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm guessing you know what it's like to feel highly engaged by your work, but on the edge of exhaustion, to be doing the best you can, but still feel it isn't enough to have more essentials than you can fit into your day, to want to do more but simply don't have the space, be making progress on things that matter, but too weary to derive any joy from the success. For you who give so much, I say this, there is another way. Not everything has to be so hard. Getting to the next level doesn't have to mean chronic exhaustion. Making a contribution doesn't have to come at the expense of your mental and physical health. When the essentials become too hard to handle, you can either give up on them or you can find the easier way. Essentialism was about doing the right things. Effortless is about doing them in the right way. Ah, oh, come on, world premiere right here on Converge. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. You got to feel good, man. That's, uh, well, uh, I feel good. <laughs> you should. And 
it is profound. And I, I don't say that lightly. I, I know what you're speaking to. In fact, I must just ask, is your daughter okay? There is a lot to the story and the whole, the very final section of the book, I write, I write the whole story of the last two years. But I okay. appreciate you asking. And as of this moment, things are looking up. All right. Well, bless you, man. It was not just a seizure. It was the complete discombobulation of her capabilities for uh, for for months yeah of her losing capability uh, without any even the beginning of a diagnosis so i will say that it was it was agony at times but it should have been more agony than it was mm. because of these practices that perhaps we learned the hard way but i believe sort of got us through so anyway more to that but you had a question well, it's so interesting. I'm, I'm in the middle of a writing project right now. The idea that people spend a lot of energy in their life unconsciously believing that they're supposed to be happy, that everything should go their way, that that's what a good life is when circumstance goes their way, as opposed to the more that what is normal is heart. What's normal is fender benders, train wrecks, people saying you have cancer. My friend Todd Henry likes to say, the last he checked, the mortality rate in California was 100%. Everyone's dying. <laughs> and there's a sense of like, life is hard. And I heard this phrase from this poet. He just It was a throwaway line, but he just described the human experience as the whirlwind of being human. And I make the case that the whirlwind is, like what you experienced with your daughter is, we should anticipate that more often. This is Nassim Tlaib and anti-fragility. This notion that if you live in a world where you think it's always going to be wind and sun at your back and things going your way up to the right, it's just naive. And instead, what if we were to anticipate the whirlwind and relate with it differently? And you've postponed my book because now I have to read your new book to have that <laughs> inform what I'm thinking. You're speaking, I know, to the heart and soul of listeners right now who who are in the midst of that. They've come off maybe the hardest year of their life categories that they've never had to anticipate or deal with before and your vulnerability and willingness to drink your own medicine and to be honest with what it tastes like and to acknowledge that it's still a process that you're engaging. Uh, becoming an essentialist is not a binary act. It's a deepening and an ongoing every present moment reality. And I, I just, for one, I appreciate it deeply. Thank you. That's so kind of you. Thank you. I mean it. And I guess what I want to ask in response to it is this notion of, of doing the right thing for the right reasons, but also finding better and better ways to making things more and more effortless. Could you have written that book without the experience you just described? I mean, essentialism has some of the language of effortlessness in it. Actually, if I'm totally honest, one of the oddities for me is how few people feed that back to me when they talk about essentialism. Mm. The final quarter of the book is about effortless execution, but somehow, and I, it's on me, I'm not, it's not on any reader, but somehow that just isn't a message that people heard as clearly. And I think it's because the book is framed around being an essentialist or a non-essentialist. And so that is just the frame uh, but to me, there's a second frame. There's a second piece to this. And so in the end, I, I felt like it was important enough that it deserved a full treatment and, and a deep dive. In order to write it, I think I actually couldn't have written it before. To your point, I just, you, you know, you, you have to become something in order to write about some subjects. 
You have to be something so that you can even see either the need for it or the solution for it. And I, I certainly feel that that has massively shaped this book and perhaps especially the tone of it. I mean, it's not the only time in my life I've suffered. I, I, don't, I don't mean that at all. But there was still something about it, you know, about having your daughter go from being vivacious, healthy, paragon of health, in fact, and then with no explanation whatsoever, having her suddenly like a like an old turntable suddenly just be slowed down. I mean, she was on the journey to falling into a coma and dying for months and this total free fall and no doctor we met with, no neurologist we worked with could give us even the faintest insight. Mm. <laughs> that is a particularly perplexing, particularly acute challenge and certainly pushed us into new territory. And the, the upside of that, of course, is that you get to learn new things. I don't know how to describe all the things that you do, but you have a lot of channels that you are minding. And I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say it's a lot, but you have essential ones. And one of the essential ones that you have is your podcast, the Once Essential Podcast. And on it, one of my favorite episodes is your very first episode with Anna, bringing her on and talking a little bit of the origin story and really setting the table for essentialism. Even as you're describing the situation you've just come out of and that obviously you've navigated this in partnership with her. I got to believe that the flavor of the podcast, the tone of the, of the podcast is also influenced. And that if people are interested in not just getting these concepts mentally, but are wanting to live this out and anticipate that it's going to be a living out where they're going to deepen it over time as they continue to engage it, being in this conversation around tuning in, like subscribing to the West Essential podcast is kind of a an ongoing masterclass, it sounds like, in not just understanding these ideas, but living these out in real lives. Is that accurate? Well, first of all, the podcast is just an exploration for me. Also now, Anna, you know, people loved that first episode. Yeah. And so she's been on a couple of times since, and we just intend to do more together. We just love doing the work together. And frankly, people have loved her. Yeah. And I, I love that because obviously yeah. I love her. We just hope to lean into that. So we're just learning as we go and we're trying to be open about our weaknesses and our frailties. And one of the things that we've done on there is had, I would say probably a third of the episodes, the podcast has been out about six months, about a third of the episodes have been essential interventions where we just have everyday person. Right? We've, we've had notable people on there. We've had uh, Ariana Huffington and Jay Shetty yeah. and Rachel yeah. Hollis and uh, Maria Shriver coming up and mm. you know we could do every episode like that but I've really enjoyed taking these conversations that I used to have one-on-one -on -one with people and for those that have been willing to be vulnerable having them on and we just talk about their life what's really going on and how essentialism and effortless can apply to their life so that they can design an intervention that feels doable achievable and they can actually do it it used to be in fact so far, every intervention is just the intervention itself. You get to listen to the conversation and there's getting to this you know, coaching session. You get to mm. listen in. But what has happened over the last few months is that literally without fail, people have come back to me saying that they have done the thing that we talked about. Well, I didn't know what the success rate would be with it, to be honest. Mm. Uh, mm. But but like, for example, uh, B.J. Fogg wrote Tiny Habits, a New York Times mm -hmm. bestseller, terrific person in his own right. I had him on the show. and We did an essential intervention instead of just doing the normal interview. 
And then halfway through the, the intervention, I said, OK, well, we've got the thing now. You know what you want to change and what it was. He wanted to create a three day weekend where he completely unplugs. And I said, OK, we've identified what it is. Now you tell me using all of your skills and all of what you've done in your research, you walk us through how you're going to make that change. <laughs> and so he did that. And I learned by being on somebody else's podcast mm. that he'd also been on that, that he talked about that and how he has been doing it ever since. From now on, with the essential interventions, I'm going to start trying to have the people come back on. Oh, so good. So in the same episode, we'll have to do some logistics, but in the same episode, people will get to hear the intervention and the outcome. So whatever the outcome is, they'll actually get to hear the end of the story, so to speak. Amazing. Well, friends, if you're listening to this podcast and you can hear my voice, I am not overstating it when I say this what you need to do one of these three things and you probably need to do one of these three things like right now. So one, if you've never had a chance to read essentialism, go get it this minute. Second, if you have, and you're interested in continuing and deepening in your practice of becoming an essentialist right now, go out and get effortless. And no matter what, wherever you're at, you must go subscribe to the What's Essential podcast. Engage in the conversation. One of my favorite words that you used today, Greg, is this idea of exploration. And it's really, it's an invitation to recognize that without sounding cliche or pithy, life truly is a journey that we can get better at. And we can navigate things in our future better than we can in our past if we do work in our present. I think that's what you are talking about. That's what you're modeling. That's what you're inviting people into. And I I just cannot thank you enough for making your book better. I joked off air that whenever you read a, a book and you meet the author, the book can't stay the same. It has to either improve or get worse. And I am just more grateful than I thought I could be. Thank you so much for sharing what you shared. Such a pleasure to be with you. It's been, been really just wonderful. And thank you for your time and, and support for, for these ideas and for the difference that you're making in the world. Thank you. This was episode one, season six of the Business of Creativity podcast. Converge is made possible thanks to cantilever.co and tellmeyourdreams.com. For all our past evergreen episodes with guests like Seth Godin, James Clear, Anne Handley, Ryan Holiday, Jazz Ampafar, Donald Miller, Mike Michalowicz, Sarah Green Carmichael, Brad Montague, Kevin Kelly, Todd Henry, Scott Stratton, Chase Reeves, Gretchen Rubin, Chris Gillibo, Starley Kine, and more, go to convergepodcast.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. See you next time. Ironic Media Production. Visit us at ironicmedia.com.